X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. It's the Ides of May, May 15th, 2020. This is episode 40. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. Today, back in the day of 1960, Dmitry Shostakovich debuted his seventh string quartet in Leningrad. Today, back in the day in 1869, on the Ides of May, May 15th, the National Women's Suffrage Association formed in New York, founded by Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Today on the local, your quick six headlines. Focus on local news, Alex Zielinski of the Portland Mercury, and an interview with Lori Wimmer, candidate for House District 36. And I think we just need to be reminded that we're there to serve a greater good and not just the political expediency of the moment. First up, today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. 31 of Oregon's counties approved to reopen business. Most of Oregon's geography, including some of its larger cities, will begin the slow process of reigniting their economies as early as today. Governor Brown announced on Thursday the state has given permission to 31 of the state's 36 counties to reopen bars, restaurants, and personal services businesses as of today, May 15th. That list includes five of the state's 10 most populous cities. That includes Eugene, Bend, and Medford. At the same time, state officials refused applications by Marion County and Polk counties. Those refusals came amid concerns over increased hospitalizations in the Salem area. Multnomah County, Washington, and Clackamas counties have not applied to reopen. Multnomah County leaders on Thursday announced a variety of requirements the city is working towards to reopen safely. You can find some helpful graphs and information on those thresholds at multco.us, another helpful website. The county has met the threshold for requirements like a 14-day decline in coronavirus hospital admissions, as well as meeting testing and healthcare capacity. It's still working towards metrics including adequate contact tracing and securing sufficient PPE for the first responders. And officials have stressed that resuming aspects of normal life does bring with it the possibility Oregon could see a COVID-19 infection spike. The governor's office has said retail businesses can reopen. Standalone furniture stores such as Ikea have gotten the green light. An array of small shops, specifically boutiques, have too. Shopping malls, indoor and outdoor, do not yet have the green light. Starting Friday, the governor is also allowing child care centers across Oregon to care for all children. Summer school and youth programs can also start up statewide with some restrictions. So what's off-limits in the Portland area? Restaurants and bars are still prohibited from offering dine-in service in Portland. Cultural, civic, or faith gatherings of more than 25 people are still barred. Social gatherings of more than 10 people are still barred. So here's one of the questions. Can you leave Portland and head over to Wilsonville to get a haircut or go to a restaurant? Governor said on Thursday, no, although it's not clear what the plans are to enforce that. The governor asked Portland residents to hold tight and resist the urge to drive to another county to get a haircut or eat out. And as for new rules for stores that do open for business, of course, retailers must focus on maintaining at least six feet of distance between people and workers, limit occupancy so stores don't get too crowded, and frequently sanitize commonly touched surfaces, among other measures. And your daily dose of data, 67 new confirmed coronavirus cases bring the state's total positive cases that are confirmed to 3,407. Three new coronavirus-related deaths that brings us to 137. Oregon is one of nine states that a Harvard study says have met the thresholds for reopening by May 15th. The other states, Alaska, Hawaii, Montana, North Dakota, Tennessee, Utah, West Virginia, and Wyoming, along with Oregon. To be clear, there are other states reopening, like Wisconsin, despite data not suggesting any wisdom of that. Speaking of Washington state, according to the most recent available data from the Washington Department of Health, 
17,512 confirmed cases and 975 coronavirus-related deaths. With a deluge of mailings coming our way, the Willamette Week decided to launch a new set of superlatives for mailings. From least accurate endorsement, that was won by the mayor. He said that Chloe Daly had endorsed him when in fact she hadn't. The most effective political judo award went to Here Together, the campaign behind Metro's $250 million a year homeless services measure. It was a red-on-black preemptive strike against the no campaign's efforts to convince voters the measure would do all manner of bad things. The mailer says, don't believe the lies. Tara Hurst got a nod for having campaign volunteers sign the mailings, and Dan Ryan got a nod for wearing a mask on his mailpiece. You get a favorite mailpiece or something you learned during the campaign, feel free to email us at thelocal at xray.fm. And don't forget, we got 60-plus candidate interviews at xraypod.com to help you with your ballot. The Oregon Department of Justice now concedes that hundreds of non-unanimous verdicts should be tossed. The Oregon DOJ conceded on Monday that convictions on at least 269 cases should be tossed out following the U.S. Supreme Court ruling last month. That course found, remember, in Ramos versus Louisiana, the convictions by non-unanimous juries in state and criminal courts violate the Constitution. While the case was out of Louisiana, Oregon was the last state in the country to allow non-unanimous convictions in felony and non-murder cases. Before the ruling, juries could convict defendants by 10 to 2 and 11 to 1 verdicts. The 269 cases the DOJ conceded likely represent just a small number of the total cases that could be affected. Cases still require the approval of judges and justices on either court before the convictions can be reversed. Some of the defendants are right now serving sentences in prison. Some cases could be sent back and retried by the local district attorneys. In other cases, prosecutors could choose not to retry the case, effectively dropping the charges. And meanwhile, Oregon courts have been reduced to just essential functions thanks to the COVID-19 pandemic. And these cases will further strain the backlogged court system. And also, the Oregon Department of Corrections is closing death row. That's an isolated space in the corner of the penitentiary adjacent to the death chamber. Prison reformers have argued against isolation imprisonment, such as death row cells and solitary confinement. The 27 men who live there will be placed elsewhere in the prison system. The state has had a moratorium on execution since 2011 when Governor John Kitzhaber said he wasn't going to do it anymore. Oregon has received 14,100 new unemployment claims. The Oregon Employment Department now says it's received a total of 396,000 initial claims since coronavirus closures began in mid-March. The agency said they've made it through 86% of those initial claims. Tens of thousands of claims remain unprocessed, some for six or seven weeks, according to the agency. And for listeners of local, you know that that 14,000 number is the lowest number of new jobless claims in the last two months. It's still an extraordinary number in any other time in history. And then Oregon food stamp applications have shot sky high. A typical month, 1,300 applications. Recently, 13,000 applications per week and slowed down to 8,200 per week. Some good news. OHSU's first coronavirus patient was discharged after two months in the hospital. And a shout out to the PDX COVID-19 Mutual Aid Network. They've raised $100,000 on their GoFundMe. So far, they've spent almost $14,000 on groceries and supplies for the community. All the money raised will be used for grocery and medication support for communities in the Portland region. The group now has over 800 members offering support and helping with food distribution. You can find out more on their Facebook page, PDX COVID-19 Mutual Aid. Thanks to the wonderful people doing wonderful things. And that is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Here's Emily Gilliland with What's Next. Thanks, Jefferson. First up, a focus on local headlines with Alex Zelensky from the Portland Mercury. 
Dad, I think it is time for us to bring on in our friend Alex Zelensky from the Portland Mercury. I think it is. Alex, are you with us? I am. Well, welcome, and what's going on that you want to share off the bat? <laughs> um, I I think it'd be uh, interesting to go into something that's not coronavirus-related for a moment, um, which I feel like I, I don't know if you guys have been covering COVID stuff this morning and election stuff, but that just seems to be everything we're covering. Um, uh, I was... I spoke to a number of folks this week who used to work at a store, um, a bar in Portland called the Liquor Store, uh, southeast Port or southeast Belmont, um, who are um, who joined together to file a lawsuit against their main investor, um, alleging him of uh, sexual harassment and also accusing this the owner of this uh, bar of just allowing it to continue, kind of unmitigated. Um, and it's been it's been interesting um, speaking to both of the the women who are accusing this man in a lawsuit because they've gotten so much support from other bartenders and, and folks from like the, the Portland small kind of music venue um, and booking and, and musician community um, showing that you know even if someone puts and, and funnels a ton of money into a, a bar or a venue um, like this this main investor that they're kind of accusing that there is really support in the local musician and artist community um, to protect and to fight for service industry folks working at these venues a lot of them are musicians and a lot of them are um, yeah trying to get into the music industry here and so um, I spent the week kind of chatting to a lot of folks who have had experiences with this guy and who um, are really familiar with kind of these these characters um, who uh, sometimes prey upon staff and um, patrons and, and bars and venues that they um, that they put a ton of money in because they have kind of that leverage. Um, so that's kind of one of the stories that I have been poking around this week. Alex, what are the biggest questions facing the city? And I mean maybe those less obvious than who's going to win a given race. Uh, but what are some of the biggest questions that you're looking for answers to in the election for which ballots are due on Tuesday and people ought to mail them today or earlier? That's a good, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think... I think there's a lot to be said for kind of the the ways that different folks have been campaigning um, this time around. Uh, the campaign finance kind of violations that we've seen pop up and just the inability to follow uh, some of these rules that are admittedly new. Um, but but the, the, the responses that we're seeing from candidates um, about these rules and about, you know, whether it's open and accountable elections or whether it's just the, the uh, limits, the campaign donation kind of conversations um, really seem to speak uh, a lot about kind of where these, uh, these candidates' heads are at. And, um, you know, I think it's interesting to consider kind of there's, there's a wide diversity of kind of where people stand when it comes to campaign finance and, um, you know, 
owning up to, to maybe problems with their campaigns. Um, when it comes to the bigger kind of election-related questions or, you know, uh, four-year-down-the-road kind of questions, um, I, yeah, I think, I think it's really easy right now to see, um, you know, to be really um, focused in the very immediate future and kind of, okay, we're in this middle of this crisis, what can people do to help us get out of it as soon as possible? Who will lead us? Who looks like the best leader right now? Or who has the most creative idea for, for writing this? But I think um, voters should really consider and look at, look at folks' records for the long term. And is this someone who, once the dust settles, you, you still want um, leading your community? Someone who will be able to, um, you know, bring new ideas to city council or bring new ideas to metro or or you know the district attorney's office um they're both two different scenarios that i think are really important to think about in terms of the campaign finance rules what is the current state of play with who's sort of following the rules and who's not how successfully they're doing it what should people know yeah um well everyone Everyone is following the new campaign finance rules, um, as much as I know, to limit um, donations, individual donations uh, to 250, um, because it is now being uh, uh, the city is now, you know, considering it law. Um, I think Dan Ryan, candidate Dan Ryan, was the, the only one who kind of had to return funding recently because of violating that. Um, but I think I think folks are, are pretty quick to follow those now that they're being um, regarded as, as city law. Um, I think the gray area is more around kind of the um, I know the ability or the necessity to um, list kind of what people's top donors are and kind of who's contributing to their campaigns in campaign communication, so like flyers or ads or uh, their websites, and um, that seems to be an area that candidates are really kind of like puzzled by or, or forgot that that was actually still like rule to list the top five top five donors um, to your campaign on any, and, and kind of what industry they're in on any pamphlet. And I think we spoke about this before, but but Ted Wheeler was the first to be penalized for not doing that. Um, and more recently, uh, a, a political action committee that supports uh, Sam Adams' run for city council has been found uh, guilty of not of not swapping that list on. But honestly, if you start looking around, there are a lot of folks who are not really following these guidelines. And it sounds like from the, um, the Office of uh, elections in, in Portland, like the, the city's kind of office that's in charge of kind of regulating whether or not people are following these rules, they are being pretty lenient um, when it comes to penalties right now. They're giving folks a chance to um, to mend their problems and to fix uh, fix their errors and kind of go forward from there. Uh, I think, which is fair right now because it's such a new um, a, a new order. And there hasn't been too much time to train different candidates on things. I, I, I'd imagine that uh, in a different scenario, there'd be more kind of hands-on um, instruction as to, to how to 
you know, follow these new rules. Those are the questions I had. I suspect I would have more, but I am cognizant of time. I really appreciate you being with us, as all, as I always do, as we always do appreciate it. Lori Wimmer, a candidate for Oregon House District 36, sits down with Jefferson Smith to share her vision for Oregon and why she's running for office. We're in the final days before the Oregon primary on May 19th. You can find all of our candidate interviews on xraypod.com or on your favorite podcast platform under Vision 2020 Candidate Interview Series. We're talking to Lori Wimmer, candidate for House District 36. Lori Wimmer, longtime advocate and lobbyist for the Teachers Union, now a candidate, not for the first time, but for the first time in a while, and running for the state House of Representatives is one of the many races that we're covering here on X-Ray. Lori, how you doing? I'm doing great. Who are you and why are you running? Uh, well, I'm a 30-year public policy advocate representing values that are progressive, uh, representing the people in the Oregon legislature, both uh, in terms of uh, issues around health care access, family leave, domestic violence, et cetera, and public education and improving uh, also our tax system. I believe in closing the wealth and income inequality gap. I think we can do that because our budget and our tax code are both moral documents, and what we prioritize is what we fund. And I know, because I've been the chair of the Revenue Coalition since 2001, that there are things we can do to make our system fairer and to make sure that our families and our communities thrive. I'm in it to win it so that I can do so for Oregon families. I'm wondering about a time that you have or a time that you could anticipate having to disagree with your base. Well, I I don't know that I will always agree with every single thought that every single person in my base would ever have. But let me try this from a different angle. Sure. Oregon's legislative process used to be a little bit more innocent than it's evolved into in recent years. I've been there for 30 years. And I have watched the occasional, uh, let's say, hostage-taking or transactional, uh, you know, I'll vote for this if you vote for that kind of thing, or deal-making, if you will. But it was the rare exception, not the way most bills passed or failed. People voted their conscience, they voted their base, they voted their constituents' desires, they voted their values. Now, on significant key issues that are remotely controversial, they all end up in this horse trading arena toward the end. And there's high pressure, no time to go back out and talk to your constituents, no time to do anything but act or react. And I'd like to approach my candidacy and my service, should I be elected, from a different perspective, which is to say, if you're coming in to talk to me about a vote trade or a consequence if I don't vote the way you want me to, the conversation stops at the store right now. I will not be that kind of voter. Uh, I mean, on most things, uh, the caucus needs to work together as a team, and I get that. But if there is no longer going to be space for people to vote their conscience on key votes that are controversial or that they have a stake in and have said so from the beginning, as I have when I've identified myself and my values, then uh, then that's not a process where we're representing our constituents anymore or where we can stand up and ask people to trust us. And I want to restore trust and integrity to that work. And, I, and the buck stops with me. If I give up my values at any point, then it's time to leave the legislature, not enter it. And so 
uh, I'm, I'm hoping to approach this a different way. And I think we just need to be reminded that we're there to serve a greater good and not just the political expediency of the moment. And what I'm trying to get to a little bit is with so much alignment, with so much uh, the term that Ezra Klein and others use is polarization. I don't think it's polarization because I don't think it's, it's equitable polls. I don't think there's extreme extremism is even. But there has been a significant divide. Gone are the days where you have a rural, bunch of rural Democrats and a bunch of urban Republicans elected to the Oregon legislature. And so figuring out, as we just saw from the walkout, figuring out how you create uh, supermajorities consensus for hard stuff, not just for, you know, an end budget compromise, but for hard stuff. I'm really interested in it. How, how did, and how are you thinking about that? First of all, feel free to give any comment on the walkout. I'm, presumably you'll whack the Republicans for doing it. Right. Well, I think once we get to the point of walkout, the patient is in a pretty diseased state, and that is where we are, not just with our pandemic, but with our political pandemic, if I can make a, a metaphor here. Uh, we have gone so far off the cliff of uh, what I was saying just a moment ago about remembering what our values are uh, and being so transactional about our politics that when you have an uneven playing field with one party in power and the other not, you end up with desperation measures that then become normalized just as a tool over and over again. And the only way to put that genie back in the bottle is to begin at the beginning before session uh, begins next year. I think there should be uh, some kind of retreat. Uh, I think that there needs to be some sort of... of uh, revisiting of processes. I certainly think that if retreat it, of all the members, Democrats and Republicans, or something yes, different than that. I would do it. I I might start with a uh, a two day retreat of all the Democrats from both chambers, not just one caucus, but both both sets of Democrats, both sets of Republicans in one retreat, and then have uh, maybe a smaller group uh, go on a bipartisan retreat uh, uh, secondarily for a couple days, and. And talk about ground rules and talk about whether or not we really want to blow up every session or we want to serve. And what does that look like? Uh, I think the citizens have made it pretty clear in polling that I've seen that they do not approve of using the nuclear option every time we don't get our way. Um, and so they'd like to at least see consequences. Uh, so there are a number of ways to approach that. We should make sure that if... Uh, we go to extreme measures that we'd be ready to accept the consequence of our actions. Actions without consequence are, are just tools. And the actions taken in a walkout should be rare and they should be warranted for one big thing once every blue moon, not session after session or multiple times in a given session. Um, and so if there are consequences for the behavior, then I think it will be rarely used. What kind of consequences? What should happen to a bunch of state senators who say walking out is the new filibuster? If we don't like it enough, we're going to flee to Idaho. What should be the consequence? Well, first of all, they shouldn't get their base pay plus per diem. Per diem is your expenses. So cut serving, their pay. And if you're not serving, you shouldn't get them. Yep. Uh, so start with a cut in pay. You should perhaps also uh, issue a fine for every day they're out. And perhaps even uh, as uh, one of the proposed ballot measure initiatives would suggest, 
uh, forfeit your right to serve in the successive legislative session. That would be a big incentive. I mean, I could imagine it not being a scarlet letter, but a red badge of courage for somebody who walks out to say, ha, I know I'm not going to get paid, but I got to do it anyway, because that's how much I care about our ability to continue to pollute or whatever. Like, so <laughs> I, like I, I could imagine that being a campaign line. But not being able to run again for somebody who is thinking about how much power they wield, that's a real thing. That's a real thing. And I think that if the principle is so grave that you're willing to sacrifice your service, well, then maybe you should walk out and and do that and be willing to stand up for the consequences, because that's part of the bargain, isn't it? I remember studying Thoreau and Emerson when I was in uh, high school or college. And, you know, I think that the line when uh, Thoreau was thrown in jail for not paying his taxes because he didn't support the Mexican-American War, Emerson comes to visit him and says, why are you in there? And Thoreau says, the question really is, why are you not? The, so, oh, consequence is part of protest. And if you're not willing to stand up for the consequence, the protest rings hollow to me. I want to ask about process changes. Since the big sort, since the days, let's call it in the 70s, where you did have significant ideological and geographic dissonance within political parties, whereas now you have... Uh, Almost all of the dissonance, they call it polarization, I call it dissonance, all of the dissonance betwixt parties rather than within parties. You don't have a bunch of, you had had genuinely liberal Republicans, not just like moderate Republicans, but genuinely liberal Republicans and genuinely hardcore segregationist Democrats, like not long before my lifetime. The current reality is now kind of like that. And it does seem we're seeing it at the federal level. I think we're seeing it at the state level. It is making it harder to find supermajorities to build consensus. One argument is it doesn't matter if the Republicans do that kind of stuff, just beat them. If Mitch McConnell is going to be like that nationally, just beat him and eventually just get 60 Democrats in the U.S. Senate and assume that one party will be able to get it right for long enough. I am also, though, more interested maybe than ever in considering process changes. Are there process changes other than just punishing Republicans who go away or Democrats who went away? Are there process changes that you think we should more seriously consider? What's the most radical one, whether it's star voting or ranked choice voting or some new kind of campaign campaign finance reform or multi-member districts, any kind of process change that you would champion or even consider? You know, I think that the process is really often thrown under the bus as being somehow broken, and I don't think that's the case. So apologize for not playing along, but I really do feel that it is about a different kind of thing, and that is about what has happened to our narratives and our public discourse and our sense of control and power and exploitation of both fear and hope, frankly. Uh, and I think that that's just gotten out of hand, aided and abetted by an unnatural uh, amount of money in political processes. And money and power are everything in all discussions where there is struggle. And when, when we ended up with the Citizens United decision at the federal level, uh, it was sort of game over in that regard. And what happened at the national level has trickled down into just about every state. And so we have a lot of people who are, uh, who are confused by the influence of money and how that shapes messages and how that shapes their very public opinion to the extent they have one around the key issues of the day. Because 
Uh, and I would say that the Internet owns a little bit of this, too, because it's garbage in, garbage out sometimes. There's, and we all know about uh, the Cambridge Analytical, Analytica piece. We know about all the different ways we can be manipulated with information. So power, money, and information uh, constraints, I would say, because, you know, the death of newspapers across the country has also meant that we are um, having a difficult time discerning good information from bad, and we all have been fooled. There will be, before the legislature, an argument about limits to campaign contributions, almost certainly. Provided voters approve of the referral that clarifies the Constitution to allow there to be campaign finance limits, it's going to come across your debts what those limits ought to be. And there'll be folks who say, hey, the limits ought to be whatever is, you know, low enough to appease voters and like good government nerds, but not stringent enough that it really changes the process. How do you imagine engaging in that debate? And could you imagine uh, agreeing to pretty darn high limits, something that doesn't change the process that much or doesn't change the money and politics problem that much? Do you imagine yourself championing uh, sort of middle class level limits, something like 500 bucks, 250 bucks, 1000 bucks, rather than like federal limits, which, of course, have not cured Congress? Well, you know, this pandemic has given us a good window on what happens when you cannot fundraise and when you cannot go door to door and when you cannot have the level of engagement most campaigns are used to. Uh, and I think about what it is I would do if I didn't have the opportunity to undertake the expensive uh, proposition yeah. of at least mailing people. Uh, and creating some sort of ability to dialogue with them through uh, the use of uh, alternative mechanisms. Right. And I know that given that particularly down-ballot races are already kind of a rare species in terms of interest level of most people who are just laying out their daily lives trying to have one, <laughs> getting attention of people in, in order to make sure you are able to make a telling case for your candidacy is very difficult under the best of circumstances. And then add to that the fact that, at least in Oregon, the state legislature is not uh, something that's a very lucrative thing to do. So you work your buns off to get elected to something that will pay you about $25,000 a year, which will you know, uh, not exactly a, a, a great wage. And so it means that a lot of people who might otherwise be great public servants will never elect to even attempt to serve. So uh, I believe that if we're going to have campaign finance limits, we have to have ways for people to be able to get their message out so voters are able to So say, public financing. This is what I care about. You're talking about public financing of elections or something else? Well, it would have to be. Yeah. Uh, and maybe also better salaries so that you have a wider uh, electoral candidate pool to choose from and not just people who are on the verge of retirement or uh, otherwise fairly wealthy. Laura Wimmer, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. And today, back in the day, May 15, 1960, presidential candidate John F. Kennedy gave a speech in the Dalles, Oregon. As he spoke of that year's primary, he said, we will not merely reward faithful service. We will choose a person to be the center of energy and activity in our entire governmental system. Only if the parties choose their candidates well, only then will the American people next November be able to select someone equipped with the qualities which our country and our age demand. 
I am sorry that in 1960 there are some in both parties who regard primary contests with indifference. They have forgotten the lessons of history, that only those candidates with faith and confidence in the people and their wisdom can count on receiving that faith and confidence at the polls in November. They have forgotten the words of Thomas Jefferson, that there are always in effect two parties, those who fear and distrust the people and wish to take power from them, and those who identify themselves with the people, have confidence in them as the most honest and safe depository of the public interest. Jefferson would have approved this primary. He would have urged you to cast your ballot in it. I hope you will be true to that heritage. Thank you, John F. Kennedy. Some words stand up to time. Remember to turn in your ballot. Too late to mail and guarantee its delivery, so drop it in one of the ballot drop boxes. Thanks to Alex and Lori for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Huge thanks to our production team, the magical Will Romy, Casey Colton, Kate Kay, Julia Oppenheimer, Joy Palchik, Miranda Selinger, Ryder Sherwood, and Jamie Zangwill. And thank you to original reporting by X-ray journalist Kate Kay, The Lund Report, Oregon Health Authority, COVID19.healthdata.org, The East Oregonian, The Daily Chronicle, The Portland Business Journal, The Willamette Week, Pamplin Media, OPB, The Oregonian, The Statesman Journal, Street Roots, Coin, and News Partners, Bridgeliner, and The Portland Mercury. Thanks also to co-executive producer Emily Gilliland, and I'm Jefferson Smith. Again, you got story ideas, email us, thelocal at xray.fm. You want to help out? Also, you can email thelocal at xray.fm. It can be an interesting way to spend some time. We can build this thing together. We can be together while we're apart. Talk to you Monday. It'll be election week. In the meantime, stay home, stay connected, remember to vote, and thank you, democracy. X-Ray.